Well, what should a pastor be like? That's an important question. It's relevant to all of us. You may hear that and go, well, I'm not a pastor. I don't plan to be a pastor. That's not a question that I need to answer. I think it's a question that is, though, important to all of us. It is also important to those who are pastors. Again, as we have recently installed, voted on, our church has recognized, voted on, and we've installed three new pastors here at the church last week um, for you three men, as well as our other three elders right now who are serving. This is an important text for us, an important question for us to answer. What should a pastor be like? But even if you're not a pastor, it's an important question because as a Christian, our life is seen in the context of a local church. If you read the New Testament, uh, there is no understanding of a New Testament Christian without a life involved in a local church. It just doesn't make sense. Paul is writing letters to uh, pastors of local churches, Timothy and Titus. In Acts, he's going through missionary journeys, starting new local churches. And then the rest of his letters, he's writing back to those churches to see how they're doing. It's the context of the New Testament Christian life within the life of local church. And so even if you're not a pastor, as you then come into the involvement of a local church, that question is important. As you look at the leaders of a church, there should be categories for what those leaders should look like. As you evaluate a church, what are leaders that you're looking to place yourselves underneath their leadership and submission to them? As you look and evaluate a church to see its health um, or to, to call it to something more, what should we be calling it to? And this is, I think, particularly a helpful question in the West as there is a tendency I think we found as a church, particularly Protestant churches and particularly uh, evangelical churches, to have this bent towards looking at business, like world and structure and leadership statutes and pulling from there to shape the church as opposed maybe to looking at the scriptures. In a lot of churches, the pastor can function far more like a CEO than a pastor. Is that right? Is that good? How do we hear stories over and over again, not just of pastors being removed from their ministry for sin or for some kind of moral failing, but also more recently for accusations of being domineering, abusive, or a bully? How does that happen? Well, friends, I think it happens whenever we steer away from what the Bible describes that leader should look like, what a pastor should look like. I think apart from the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, our text this morning gives the most precise uh, language and description of what these leaders should look like. As Peter writes to these churches in Asia Minor, these elders or leaders, pastors, uh, it's just as influential for us today. So as we look uh, and continue our study in 1 Peter, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 this morning. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. I'll go ahead and read it, uh, and then we will dive in. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you. Not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, 
Be subject to the elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This morning, I want to see three things from our text. First, we'll see concerning these elders, we'll see who the elders should follow. This is, I think, verse 1 in the pattern laid out by Jesus. Then we'll see what the elders should do. We'll see this in verses 2 through 4, laying out the manner of what this leadership position should look like. And then third, we'll see how the church should respond then to that leadership uh, in, uh, in the final verse in 5. So first, the, looking at the question, who should the elders follow? Verse 1, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Now, before looking at this pattern that Peter lays out of who elders should follow, I think we should ask the question, why is Peter talking about this now and here? If you were with us last week, Peter finished chapter 4 talking about suffering and persecution and how there is judgment that God is bringing beginning in the household of God, but then how much worse will it be for those who disobey the gospel? And then now all of a sudden he's like, oh, also, by the way, elders... It's like, Peter, what's your, what's your logic here? I appreciate Peter, but I really appreciate Paul. Paul's very logical in his argumentation. Peter sometimes can be harder to follow. If you've been on this through 1 Peter, it's like, man, I, like, I, I hear you, Peter, but it feels like you're a bit scattered. It helps me a bit as I preach and sometimes go off on tangents. I'm like, it could be worse. Right? There, I don't all of a sudden jump off on tangents, tangents about Jesus preaching to those spirits who are imprisoned. Um, so anyway, it could be worse. So be grateful. Anyway, back to, uh, back to the text. How did Peter get here? It feels a bit like a random add-on here at the end of chapter 5. The letter wraps up in, verse, in chapter 4, and he just adds on some things to the elders and members of the church. Some people have even argued that this was added later, not original to the letter. I don't think that's what's happening here. If we go back to chapter 4, remember as Peter's describing this judgment that's beginning with God's household in verse 17, that there is this discipline, this suffering that, that God is allowing in the church to be able to purify the church through these trials. That judgment begins in the household now. I think he's got Ezekiel 9 in his brain as God talks about judgment in the Old Testament and the spirit that comes in judgment. It says that that spirit begins in my sanctuary in Ezekiel 9, 6. It begins in my house in the temple. I think he's got that image in his head. And so in Ezekiel 9, 6, here's where it begins. That judgment begins in my house, just like in 1 Peter 4, 17. Then here's what... Ezekiel says, and so they began with the elders. It began then with the leaders. I think that's the connection that Peter's making here. As he's writing about this judgment that's come to God's household, he now turns and says, hey, as leaders of this household, this begins with you. Here is how you are to live. Here's how you are to lead. And he writes and exhorts the elders. You see that in verse 1. I exhort the elders. Now, this is, I think, a chance to talk a little bit about how our church is structured briefly. Because I know that we have people from all sorts of different traditions, different denominations. And maybe you ask, you know, Caleb, I hear you talk about sometimes you're one of the pastors, but also then you talk about elders. Um, I've been through the membership class, and you say that elder pastor and bishop, they're all the same word, so we can call you bishop. I just want to tell you, you can. You can do that. Uh, it is just the same. Some of our pastors hate being called pastor. Call them bishop instead. They'll love it. 
where do we get that understanding from? Well, most clearly we get it from this text. As Peter's writing, he's exhorting the elders. It seems to be this office in the early church, this office of leadership of an elder. This Greek word is the word presbyteros. This word elders pops up a number of places in other texts. The churches in Jerusalem we see had elders, Acts 11, Acts 15, Acts 16, and Acts 21. The church in Jerusalem had elders. When a group of leaders visited Paul from Ephesus, Leah read earlier in Acts 20, those leaders were called elders. The person who's sick and needs prayer is encouraged to summon the elders to come and pray and anoint them in James 5.14. The pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, show that the elders were functioning in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 5.17. And also they were appointed in Crete, Titus 1.5. These elders are widespread. They're mentioned by various authors, Luke, Paul, Peter, and James. They stretch over a wide region, Jerusalem, Palestine, Asia Minor, and Crete. And the term is always plural when you see it in the New Testament. The elders. There's a plurality then of these leaders. It's not only an office, but there's a plurality within that office. They are the elders. We don't see distinctions there. There's this group of leaders then that are given for leadership. And here, Peter is exhorting these elders to do something. And what's he exhorting them to do? We'll get here in a little while, but to go ahead and talk some in verse 2. He's exhorting them to shepherd, you see in verse 2. And to oversee, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion or willingly. Shepherding and overseeing. Now those words shepherd in the Greek is the word poimen, which is the word pastor. It's where we get that word pastor from, to shepherd or to pastor. This is functionally what these elders are to do. And that word overseeing is the same word episkopos in the Greek that we get the word overseer or bishop from. That's so why in 1 Timothy 3, it says the, one who, the person who desires the office of an overseer, that's that word episkopos, it's this office, where later in chapter 5, he describes it as an elder. Peter's use, we understand Paul to use those words as two different words describing the exact same office. And here in 1 Peter, you see all three of them used describing the same thing. These elders are to pastor and they are to oversee as a bishop. We see all these three together. And so again, pastor... Elder, overseer, bishop, they're all different words describing the same. So they're all synonymous. We see that here uh, within this text. And so that's who he's describing here, particularly as a plurality. So we have a number of pastors here, myself and five others. There's no distinction in authority amongst us. We are the elders. Uh, there is no, uh, oh, this guy preaches more. This person is paid for the work that he's doing within the church as he's a teacher. There's no distinction there. Uh, whenever I walk in, at an elder meeting, I leave any title as a lead pastor at the door. I'm one of the elders. That title just gives some help organizationally from a staff perspective. But there's no extra authority I have around that table. As we see as a plurality of elders, that is to lead and shepherd a church. That's where we understand that to be from. And so as he's exhorting these elders, notice what he's saying here at the very beginning. I'm exhorting the elders among you as a fellow elder. Peter, who had apostolic authority, doesn't come with apostolic authority here, but comes more with empathy and understanding to say, hey, I understand what God's called you to because I'm doing the same thing. I'm a co-elder, a fellow elder, one with you doing this same work. 
and not only an elder, but I've seen the pattern of Jesus. I witnessed his sufferings and I know that we will share in the glory that's to be revealed. Peter was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw God's glory revealed in Christ there on that mount. He sees the glory that awaits all those that are one with him. And so Peter knows the pattern of Jesus, suffering and then glory. Right? If you've been with us through this study, you've known he's talked about this over and over again. This is the pattern of every Christian. Suffering now, glory to come. This is the pattern. And so now as he looks at the elders, he says, guys, listen, you are no different. Your signing up to be a Christian and you entering into this office is one of following the example of Jesus. That's who you are to follow. And to know that as you follow him, there is suffering now, but there is glory to come. This is the model and who you are to follow. Who are the elders to follow? They're to follow Jesus and his pattern of life. The second, what should the elders do? It's really the meat of our passage here in verses two through four. What should the elders do? Now see, first he describes their calling here in the very first part of verse two. Shepherd God's flock among you. We already talked about this a little bit. This is the main thrust of what he's saying. This is their calling. As elders, what are they to do? They are to shepherd. They are to pastor. Notice there's no visionary, catalytic leadership here. There is no sense in which they are to lead this organization into uh, greater dividends or uh, overseeing uh, budgetary and attendance increases. Peter says, here is your role as an elder. You are to shepherd God's flock among you. Notice he doesn't say shepherding God's flock under you. Shepherding God's flock among you or with you. That's why I heard a pastor once in seminary say this, and I just couldn't forget it. He said, this is what this role is to do. What this office is as a shepherd. Shepherds should smell like sheep. There shouldn't be this removal of leadership away from people or out of the, 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 the brokenness of life in which we go, oh, no, no, no I'm not, I'm not going to do that stuff. I'm going to be more about leadership and vision, not like this stuff called life. There's no category for that in the New Testament. But a shepherd God's flock among you, with you. Now, there is a limit that I have because I'm a human being. I sleep like 33% of my life, as every single one of us do. We have to turn off every single night because we're human beings. We are finite. We are not God. Right? You ever call somebody whenever some piece of technology is broken and the person on the other end of the line doesn't really tell you anything, but all they've got is, well, have you tried turning it off and turning it back on? It's like, yeah, I've tried that. It's like the only thing I know how to do. I've already done that. That's really the fix that we have for so much that's broken in our lives. Guys, that's what we have to do every single day. We've got to turn off and turn ourselves back on. Otherwise, man, we will break quick. So I am limited. I'm finite. What that means is that I cannot shepherd and pastor every single person involved intricately in people's lives. And I think that's part of God's wisdom in having a plurality of elders. I am one of the pastors, one of the elders here. It's why we need more elders. It's why I praise God that we have voted in three more elders. As our church has grown, this is one of the things that we've felt the weight of is this command to shepherd God's flock among you and having three pastors here for so long. We praise God there have been three more that have been added. But this is what elders are to do, to shepherd God's flock. And this idea of shepherding, it's not new here to Peter. This is something we see throughout the Bible. Think of two of the great heroes of the Old Testament, Moses and David. 
These big names in the Old Testament. These people that had huge roles that God had for them. As Moses leads God's people out of Egypt, for the very first time there's a nation of Israel here in Exodus. And Moses is the leader over them to lead them into God's promised land. And David, the very first true king of Israel, as God then appoints him as a man after his own heart that then unites the, uh, the people of Israel and leads them into a time of prosperity. David and Moses, these huge figures, what did God use to prepare them for that leadership? He didn't send them to Israeli seminary. He didn't have them go through a particular kind of cohort or apprenticeship. They were shepherds. Moses shepherded, shepherded Jethro's flock for decades, and David was a shepherd out in the field. God used that profession to shape them and prepare them for the leadership that they had to shepherd God's flock. As in the Old Testament, it's not just the Old Testament, but it continues into the New. Especially Peter would have known this. Peter had that terrible moment there when Jesus was betrayed and he was asked if he knew Jesus and three times he denied him. And then we are told in one of the gospel accounts that Jesus and Peter saw one another. Peter runs off. I can't imagine the shame, the guilt that Peter felt in that moment. Denying his rabbi, his master, his teacher. In a moment whenever he's off to be crucified. But then we see another account after the resurrection. In John 21, Jesus comes back to his disciples after the resurrection and he builds a fire on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's cooking breakfast and the disciples gather around him and he's talking to Peter. Same kind of fire that Peter was around whenever he denied Jesus. It was a charcoal fire. I think Jesus wanting to bring that memory back up again for Peter. That memory of guilt, embarrassment, shame, now standing in front of the one that he had denied. And what does Jesus do? He asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. And Jesus says, well, then feed my lambs. And Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you love me? He says, you know, Lord, I love you. He says, then tend or shepherd my sheep. And then a third time he asked, do you love me? And Peter knew exactly what he was doing. Peter said, says he was grieved. Three questions from Jesus after the three denials of Jesus around the same fire. Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus looks at him and he says, well then feed my sheep. Ingrained here, I think in the life of Peter, is that moment of forgiveness and restoration. As Jesus doesn't just forgive Peter, but he restores him back into ministry. Says, Peter, this is what you are to do. And what's the language that he gives Peter to shape that ministry? It's words of a shepherd tending and feeding sheep to care for and oversee and to feed the sheep from the, from the bread of God's word. This is so much of the work of what a shepherd is to do, to tend and to feed. And notice for Peter, notice the connection of the motivation for that shepherding ministry. It is not primarily his giftedness, his personality, or how tough-minded or what kind of grit he can have. Peter, if you can, you can really white-knuckle it, man, then you can do this ministry. The fuel for the ministry, no, is what? His love and devotion to Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Well, if so, then feed my sheep. Now, for this is helpful, too, for any pastor, any elder, any leader. I think for any Christian in any kind of service or ministry, which should be all of us, 
Our motivation and fuel for ministry cannot be, oh, I'm going to do this because of what I want to accomplish for Jesus. Let me try to impress him or let me try to do this on my own strength. But our ministry and service for him flows out of our affection and devotion to him. Do we love him? That's our primary aim and question. If so, well then as pastors we turn and we love his sheep of whom we are one of them. That's why Peter says here he is shepherding God's flock among you. Peter's saying you're not above, as an elder, you're not above the congregation. You are one of the congregation. I am fundamentally more a member here than I am a pastor. I'm first and foremost a member of the Grove Church. And as a member, among other members here, have been recognized as one of the elders. But I'm among God's flock here. I'm an under-shepherd. I'm first a sheep before I'm a shepherd. And that understanding should shape the way in which we lead and shepherd. As Peter gives this, is given this charge from Jesus to shepherd, tend, and feed God's sheep. But we don't even see it in Old Testament examples with Moses and David, with Peter here with his charge, but Jesus' example himself. This is how he led. Matthew 9, 36 says this, that when Jesus saw the crowds, those that were hurting, those that were broken, marginalized, oppressed, sick, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. John 10, 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Or in our letter we've been going through in 1 Peter earlier in chapter 2, verse 25. Here's what Peter says describing Jesus. For you are all like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This was Jesus' ministry. It was a shepherding ministry. Gathering together sheep who were lost, who were straying, who were hurting, and gathering together by his voice because his sheep recognized his voice. They know his voice. They're drawn to his voice. He is the good shepherd. And as he brings them together, he binds up their wounds, protects them from the evil one who comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. That description of Satan is there in John chapter 10. And as a shepherd, he protects his sheep. He holds them fast. He keeps them in his hand. So there is no one who can snatch them away. He is the good shepherd and he's laid down his life for the sheep. He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so then as the leadership of the church, that should be marked by his example. It is a shepherding leadership. As elders, this is what God has for us to do, to shepherd God's flock among you. This is the call to shepherd he continues, though, not just in their calling, but also in their conduct. This is the second half of verse 2 down through verse 3. And he's going to give three different pairs here of denials and affirmations, negatives and affirmations. He begins first, that their conduct should, not, should be willing and not dutiful. I shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly. This is the first pair. Well, it should be willing. Not out of compulsion, not out of duty, because you have to, but because you choose to. As God's leaders, as elders, there should be a choice here. Um, they choose to do it, not have to do it. If there is a have to within serving the Lord, it's just a matter of time for you, you burn out. This is true for elders. This is true for any serving ministry, any ministry you're doing. If you're doing it because you have to out of obligation, it's just a matter of time. 
That's why it's so important we hound over and over again in our ministry teams, whether it's kids, growth kids, whether it's setting up and tearing down. If you're showing up simply out of obligation and duty, it'll work for a little while. And there may be seasons where in duty you need to remind yourself. Look, you're not, listen, you're not going to wake up. I don't wake up every single morning just skipping out of bed going, you know what? I don't need coffee this morning. I get to be an elder. What an amazing opportunity. I want, I choose to do this. There are certainly some days where there is duty that's needed to get me to the next. But if that's all there is, oh friends, it's just a matter of time. That's why in all of our ministry teams, we want to emphasize the importance of serving out of an overflow of devotion from the Lord. And not just, I'm here because I signed up. I'm here because I have to. If you're doing that, it's a matter of time before you burn out. This is why it must be willing and not dutiful. It's choosing to do it. But second, it also must be eager and not greedy. Look at the second pairing. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. There is this eagerness there. So there's not just a choosing to do it. There's also a desire to do it. A wanting to do it. I think this is important. That's why I think in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul's giving the list of qualifications for an elder, he says the person who aspires to the office of an overseer, the person who desires the office of an overseer, desires a good thing, a noble task. That desire and aspiration, I think, is so important as far as the calling goes. Sometimes we talk about calling. I don't know if you've been in church before, but sometimes people talk about calling. And it's like this mystical, like, they talk about it as though God either audibly is like yelling at them what they need to do. Or you walk outside and up in the clouds, it's like you see the clouds arranged. You can't quite see it. You squint your eyes, though, and you can see the letters across the clouds telling you what you need to go do. And God called me to go do this thing. And I'm just like, man, I have not had an experience like that. That has not been my experience. I have not audibly heard God's voice. Can God speak audibly? Of course. Just hasn't done it to me. Um, And there may not be a need to because he's spoken to us through his word. I've heard some people say, kind of tongue in cheek, that if you want God to speak to you audibly, just read the Bible out loud. When we talk about calling, it can be this kind of a way. But as the Bible describes calling, it seems like there's this internal pull, this desire and aspiration, and this external affirmation from the congregation that goes, yes, that desire is true. We see that within you. And if either of those things aren't there, then you ain't called. It doesn't matter what voice you heard or what the clouds said. You ain't heard. You heard wrong. That was probably more so the burrito you had last night than God's spirit. The person who desires or aspires for the office desires a good thing. I think it's an internal calling. Is there a desire? Is there, do you want to do it? That's what we do with all of our elder candidates. Before we even get into the point of publicly bringing before our members, we ask this question. Do you want to be an elder? If the answer is no, or if there's a sense of obligation, we just know this isn't going to work. But if God has this person here, then there's going to be a desire that's there, an aspiration. There's this eagerness that's there. It's driven by this eagerness, eager, eagerly, and not greedy for money. Listen, the, the religious leadership is an easy place for people who are greedy to make a lot of it. You can manipulate people and get all sorts of things out of people in a position of religious leadership. All you have to do is just turn on the TV and you will see some of the richest people, it feels like, in America are televangelists. And they will use it underneath the guise of leadership. I, they, I don't know how they twist the Bible to say it, but they do. And all of a sudden, it's, they're raising money for their new private jet because their old private jet isn't nice enough or is beginning to break. That's not a hyperbole. That's a guy. That's a pastor raising money. 
And I'm just like, how in the world can you get to this point? What's well, there because there is obviously this temptations there, not being greedy for money, not trying to swindle people, not trying to manipulate people in order to make more money, but to do it because you want to. There's a protection that's there. And the third thing that Peter says here, that they are to be exemplary and not domineering. I see this in verse three, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. They are to be examples. So they're to choose to do it, they're to want to do it, and they're to be examples while doing it. That's the positive sense of what an elder is to be, to choose to do the role of an elder, to want to do it, and to be examples while doing it. In a way, being able to hold up men in front of the church and say, follow them as they follow Jesus. Their lives should be examples of what it means to follow Jesus. Not perfectly, but exemplary. Is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. That would be exemplar, exemplary. Again, in the questions we asked to the elders just a few minutes ago in the member commissioning. This is part of what we, we ask. Will you set an example of Christ's likeness? It's here within Peter that we see this. This exemplary nature, imperfectly, uh, but as ones who are striving to follow Jesus. And to do it not lording over those, not domineering. And this is, I think, such an important text. Because again, I think what Peter's saying here is there is a proclivity to be domineering, to be abusive, to, to be lording it over those, to be manipulative. Uh, to domineer is to bring something into compliance by force, by threats, by bullying, by intimidation, or by manipulation. The sense of forcing people into compliance. And Peter's going, you're not to lord it over those that are entrusted to you. You are to lead as examples those who have been entrusted to you, knowing that one day you'll have to give an account. Now, friends, we, again, we've heard stories in the recent history of pastors removed for being bullies, for being abusive for being domineering. That's a serious accusation. And it's just so clearly laid out here in Scripture. This is what a pastor is to not be. And if he is, he should be removed from leadership and repent of that sin. It's really clear. But how do we get here? How do we get to a place in which this is becoming, it seems like at least, more and more common? Well, one thing we see, it's not exclusive to the West and to America. It was a problem here in Asia Minor in the first century. I think it's part and parcel of we need to be careful about leadership itself and authority. Why? And that's why when you look at the qualifications for an elder, notice it's not a whole list of skills and gifts. 95% of it is character, who the person is. And there's a few things about there about being able to teach, but that's the majority of it's just, are they godly? They're honestly incredibly ordinary qualifications if you read them. Why is that? Well, because we have to make sure that a, a leader's heart is a heart that's striving after Jesus. And I think that it's easy for us to want to find leaders that are impressive or that can produce results. We may even overlook some of the character stuff because they're a great communicator. Or they're a wonderful leader. Or man, their past church grew 600%. And we look at the results and we go, that's a good leader. We want him to be our pastor. Because we want our church to grow. And friends, I think then, if we have that kind of a mindset, again, seeing it more as a business than as a family, 
then we might overlook some of those character qualifications that Paul and Peter are saying we need to be so clearly on guard against. Because what, what authority and power does, I, I disagree a little bit with the, with, the, um, with the quote. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a really common phrase. It was actually given originally in this context describing the Pope. Describing how absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't think that power corrupts. I think power reveals. I think having true authority reveals what's in our hearts. If someone is given the ability to do what they want, I think that they will. And so I think that's why within scripture, when we look at leadership, it's focused on the heart. It's focused on character, not primarily gifting. Does this person follow Jesus? Because you look, there's only been one that's had absolute authority. And his name is Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth was given to him. And it did not corrupt him, but it revealed what was in his heart. A heart of love for those around him. A heart of service. A heart that said, I'm not going to exploit this authority for my own gain, but I'm going to lay my life down for the sake of those that I'm leading. Absolute authority reveals, absolute power reveals, I think. And so it's why then as you're looking, both as leaders here and if you go to another church one day, if you move or go to another church, as you're looking, looking for, look for leaders that look like Jesus. Don't look primarily at gifting or skill or how cool a place is. Look for someone who is not domineering. Look for someone who is exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Look for someone who meets those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Character qualifications. People that you look at, men that you look at, and you go, I want to follow them as they follow Jesus. That's why I think it's easy for domineering leadership to slip into the church. Because it can produce results. It's effective. It can get things done. It can lead to more and more results. That's why, again, there was a podcast last year of a, a church in Seattle. And the pastor of that church, who was removed eventually for this abusive, bullying kind of leadership, would often say that their church is on a bus headed forward. If you don't get on the bus, then you'll be in a pile of bodies behind the bus. He was saying it in regards to the mission of the church. And people would hear it as he was pastoring like, oh, that's great. Oh, but friends, again, there is a tendency towards overlooking some of this stuff and placing people who may be domineering into positions of leadership. This is our natural bent, right? This is what Jesus says in Mark 10, 42 and 43. Jesus called his disciples over to them and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They're domineering. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. That's the natural bent of ourselves apart from Jesus. He then looks at his disciples though and he says, but it is not so among you. Don't have that same perspective. And just later on, a few verses later, that's when he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. That's what he did with his leadership. That's what he did with his authority as he laid his life down for those who were around him. As leaders, Christian leaders, elders, we have to be exemplary and not domineering. This is their conduct. That Peter then turns and talks about their crown in verse 4. Why step into this position of leadership, suffering and glory, what you've been called to, a higher standard, both as you'll be judged and what you teach and have to give an account for those that you are uh, overseeing. And Peter says, here's the reason why in verse 4. 
It's because of the crown that awaits. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So again, Peter yet again has the same instinct to hold out this end time eschatological hope to fuel our life here, to get us through the suffering and difficult realities of this life, the hostility of this world. We keep our eye on the inheritance to come. This is the true instinct for every Christian. And again, here he's applying it to elders. Work of an elder is difficult. It is wonderful, but it is difficult. That's why I understand when Paul is talking about all his sufferings in his letter to the church in Corinth, he's talking about being beaten, he's talking about being shipwrecked, he's talking about robbers, he's talking about being left for dead. People beat Paul up so bad, they were convinced, yes, he is dead. And in that group of suffering, Paul says also the concern that he shares for the local churches. Isn't that an odd thing to add to that group of suffering? I'm beginning to experience some of that and walking both in caring for, overseeing and shepherding the church that God has entrusted to us as elders. The desire to continue to see all of us grow into maturity into Christ Jesus, but also the reality of sin and suffering in our lives. As we as elders walk alongside those walking through sin and suffering, there is a weight that we joyfully and eagerly carry, but it is a weight And I can feel Paul's reality when he includes that within his sufferings. Our last elders meeting, as we brought three new elders in, we began to walk through some of the shepherding cases. We were walking through the realities of just brokenness and sin and some of the difficulties of this life within our church. And walking through them, I just felt the weight on our shoulders of the privilege and the joy, but the weight that it is to walk alongside one another. God's flock among us. The beautiful privilege. But it is difficult. So why do it? Because there is this crown that awaits. This unfading crown of glory. There is, in contrast to the crowns that were given then to athletes that were made of, of leaves or grass that would fade, there is a crown that Jesus will bring that's unfading. This crown of glory. Because he is the chief shepherd. He's the real lead pastor of this church and every church. Every elder is an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. He's the lead pastor. And when he appears, he receives, we then receive this unfading crown of glory. Suffering now, glory to come. Keeping an eye on what uh, what is coming when Jesus returns. This is how the elders should lead, what they should do. Peter ends here in verse 5 then with how the church should respond then to that kind of a leader, that kind of leadership. How should the church respond? Verse 5. He says, well, in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, all of you, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So Peter here talks to two groups. First, he talks to those who are younger. I think he's talking to actual age. Those who are younger, men and women who are younger. If I had to guess, because I think there is this tendency for younger people to question the authority of those who are older. We didn't create the generation gap. It's been around from the beginning. And Peter's exhorting younger people, you can trust and submit to, subject yourself then to these elders, to these leaders. But then he turns in verse 5 to talk to all of you. Leaders, members, everyone following Jesus. He talks to everybody here. 
And in this exhortation, he now says, here's what you are to do. You are to all clothe yourself in humility. What a beautiful image. That you to take like a, like a robe and wrap yourself in humility. My five-year-old son right now, when he wakes up, he hates wearing clothes. I guess, I don't know if that's a five-year-old thing, but just like never wears clothes. But what he does do is he'll take a fleece blanket and he will wrap it around himself like a cape. And my man doesn't let go. And when he gets really cold, he'll put it over his head. He looks like Mary. Um, when he wraps it around, just covered in this cloak. And I can't help but think as I read this verse that Peter here is saying, take it like a blanket, take humility and clothe yourself in it. Wrap yourself in it. Let it cover every part of who you are. One church father put it this way. He said that humility is the soil in which every other Christian virtue grows. I think there's truth in that. As Peter here tells every person, leaders, how are you to lead or to lead in humility? Members, how are you then to follow that leadership, to submit, to be subject to it, to do it in humility? That this should cover every single one of us because it's humility toward one another. Notice it's relational. Peter isn't talking primarily here of our humility before God. He's talking about humility with one another. That our relationship should be motivated and flavored and wrapped in humility and not in pride because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. He pulls and quotes from the Old Testament to bring this home. And you hear the weight and the danger of pride. Sometimes we think of pride and it's just like, oh, I'm just prideful. Everyone's prideful. It's a more acceptable sin to have. Notice how God treats pride. He resists the proud, opposes the proud. Friends, pride is not something to take lightly. God resists it. Oh, but he gives grace to the humble. To those who see themselves honestly and rightly. The humility, I think, in a lot of ways, is defined for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, or verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish amb- ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. I think that's the perspective of humility. One that doesn't go, I'm awful, I'm terrible, let me think of myself less. We think lower of myself. That's false humility. What humility says is others are more important than me. We can see ourselves honestly and rightly and not have to defend ourselves, not to become defensive, not be insecure or prideful, not able to take criticism or to seek flattery. But we can stand honestly in ourselves and count others as more important than us. And we can live with others' interest in mind over us. That's a life of humility. Someone that walks in and looks around and goes, they are more important than me. Friends, how often do we think like this? Whether it's in church, whether it's in our jobs, whether it's in our family, with our friends, to walk in and have the mindset to go, I'm going to view them as more important than me. That's a life of humility. I think a life of pride swaps that and says, I'm the most important in my life. Let me do everything for me. Because I'm a pretty big deal. We got a lot of books that smell like leather back home. House filled with wooden mahogany. It's a, it's a wonderful place. I'm a big deal. And we self-aggrandize, seek flattery, resist criticism. 
prideful. Friends, if humility is the soil in which Christian virtue grows, I think in a lot of ways pride is the soil in which every sin grows. One that looks and goes, I want to do what's best for me right now. And often to the destruction of others. See, within leadership, pride uses other people for yourself. But Christian humility in leadership lays down that authority for the sake of those that they're leading. You see, in this text, we have here, I think, such a helpful correction to two ditches within our kind of current cultural moment. The ditch for leaders to misuse and abuse the authority that God has given them for their own gain. Oh, friends, this is a huge problem. And it is a proclivity that we see. And maybe you're here and you walked out of a situation like that. Maybe you walked out of a situation of, of um, religious, emotional abuse. Now, friends, that's, that's a real scenario that we see in churches today. This text is just crystal clear that God absolutely is opposed to that. But then the other ditch is then to question all authority. Well, if we've seen authority misused, well, let me raise an eyebrow and let me just question all authority. Authority equals bad. Oh, friends, again, this text helps us that we are to humbly submit to these kind of leaders. This is what Jesus is telling us to do, to look for good authority, to submit to that good authority. Because what does good authority do? It leads to the flourishing of those that they're serving. There's a huge soapbox that uh, for me is I, I see this conversation happening and there's this tendency to reject authority. There's a right tendency to reject misuses of authority. Oh, but friends, good authority, Christian authority, authority that is serving those that they're leading, that leads in humility, it leads to the flourishing of those that they lead. I want you to think about the people in your life, one or two people that pop into your head that have had the greatest impact on your life. You don't have to say it out loud, but just think in your mind. Who is that person? I would bet a decent amount of money that the people that popped up in your head to a vast majority are people in positions of authority over you that use that authority well. A parent, a coach, a teacher, someone in the community that had a right position in view of authority and used that authority for your flourishing. And it led just to that. Oh, friend, the greatest leader we've ever seen is Jesus himself. And what did he do? He kneeled down, wrapped a towel around his waist, clothing himself in humility, and washed his disciples' feet. That's what his leadership looked like. Oh, and friends, it's to be the same for us as we then lead in humility and submit in humility. Now, this is the Christian life, to guard ourselves against pride, to make sure we don't fall into that ditch of being prideful and that we are on guard against it, that we fight against pride as much as we do any kind of sin within our lives. What are ways that you might find yourself becoming prideful? You may not even be aware of it, but you may begin to find that it's easier to talk than it is to listen to people. It's a good flag that perhaps you're prideful. You want to hear your own voice rather than others. You find yourself interrupting people as much as they're talking and acting and just waiting for them to finish saying whatever they're saying so that you could say what you need to say. You're generally harsh or critical or corrective. You're really good at fault finding in others, not so much in yourself. It's easier to find faults in other people than evidences of God's grace in their life. Maybe it's hard to say, I'm sorry, or to look at somebody and go, you know what? I was wrong. To admit our humanness, because here's the deal, you're going to be wrong. You know why? Because you're not God. It's going to happen. To say you're wrong isn't an admission of weakness. It's an admission of humanity. 
We're not going to be right every single time. Find ourselves consistently defensive or maybe neglecting others, concerned only with what is concerning you. Or maybe you find yourself desperate for attention because, friends, pride is hungry for attention and flattery and respect of all kinds. Any one of those flags may be a good flag for us to go, oh, I think I'm wading into these waters of pride. Oh, Lord, would you bring me back to humility? Help me clothe myself in humility is a choice that we must make. And it's a hard one because it's not natural. But we do it as we follow the example of Jesus. Again, that humility, definition of humility in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, you know where that came from? It came from the mind of Jesus. That's what Paul said in Philippians 2, the very next verse, adopt the same mind as that of Christ Jesus, to be humble. What was Jesus' mind? Well, he existed in the form of God, but he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. But instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His mind was not to exploit his situation for his own gain, but to lay his life down for the sheep. That's what humility looks like. Oh, and friends, as leaders and as members, as Christians and followers of Jesus, it is what we are to all clothe ourselves in. Because he is the good shepherd, the shepherd that laid down his life for his sheep. Let's pray.